No, no, get off Bulbapedia. We've got a film to discuss. (laughs) Anyway, this is Cinema Excelsior. Uh, Yeah, our roundtable tonight. Uh, Walking away from his mic is Daniel Watson Jones. (laughs) Hello. I misplaced my pen. Uh, Daniel Watson Jones tonight will be playing the part of the first Crimson Dynamo. Uh, next to him is Derek Long. I didn't have any animals to share. I'm sorry. Uh, Derek will be playing uh, the first Crimson Dynamo. By the way, was Anton Vanko. Uh, Derek will be playing the part of the second Crimson Dynamo, Boris Turgenov. Uh, Not sure how I feel about that name. Yeah. Next to him, Turgenov. Next to him is Nick Bester. Pika pika. Uh, Nick will be playing the part of the third Crimson Dynamo, uh, Alex Nevsky. Nick Bester will be played by Pikachu. Yep. Yes. And I'm Stefan Claypool. I'll be playing the part of the fourth Crimson Dynamo, uh, Yuri Petrovic. Uh, Unfortunately, we could not get nine more people on the panel to play all of the other Crimson Dynamos. There have been been, uh, 13 Crimson Crimson Dynamos, some of which don't even have names. They're just listed as uh, Crimson Dynamo 9, 10, and 11. Um, So... So they're like double O agents. Yeah, yeah. So is this like a like Spider Verse style like Crimson Dynamo crossover thing? Did all thirteen ever team up together and try and take out the Avengers at once? Uh, no, because they all like one of them would become the Crimson Dynamo and then die, and then someone else would decide I will take up his mantle and become the next Crimson Dynamo. And this happened twelve times. (laughs) So. Yes, Nick, this is the appropriate time to promote your uh, fan fiction where that happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Marvel, if you want your next crossover event, um, Rise of the Dynamos. Age <laughs> of the Dynamos? Nick, are you eating a cookie right now? Eddie and the Dynamos. No, Benny and the Jets. Um, no, it's a um, foot bar. Foot bar? Okay, know. yeah. Fair enough. So today we're talking about Iron Man 2, uh, which has a tertiary connection to the Crimson Dynamo. The first Crimson Dynamo is <laughs> in this film, but that's a confusing topic. For like 10 seconds. Yeah, for, yeah. Uh, I don't know who the Crimson Dynamo is. <laughs> that's okay, there were 13 of them. Just pick one. But I know I'm the first one, not the compromised second draft. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're the only... Well, they ironed, out all the pro- they ironed out all the problems by number three. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so everyone from the first film basically is back for Iron Man 2, with the notable exception of Mr. Terrence Howard uh, as Rhodey, yes. who's been replaced by... Don Cheadle! Thank you. <laughs> I can't... <laughs> by the Crimson I've said his name... for dramatic effect. No, no, I've, I've, yeah. I've said his name twice already, and if you say his name three times, he pops up like Beetlejuice. <laughs> Uh, now I have a question about the Crimson Dynamos. Did at some point did they retcon in a war Crimson Dynamo that we didn't know existed? <laughs> yeah, the twelfth Crimson, uh, the tenth Crimson Dynamo actually saved one of his uh, legacies to come back as the same Crimson Dynamo as before. Ah, yes, the Crimson Dynamo played by John Hurt. <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, I get it. They're both the Crimson Dynamo. <laughs> Yeah, just Moving on. St- yeah, stack him side by side. <laughs> I get it. He's a time traveler. So, just a little context for uh, for this film. So, Iron Man comes out, is a big hit. 
Robert Downey Jr. is suddenly a matinee idol, uh, which I just I love. Um, He's achieved world peace, it seems. Yep. And now uh, John Favreau yes. is back. According to him, <laughs> with uh, with new writer Justin Thoreau, he of Mulholland Drive fame. And he wrote uh, Tropic Thunder, Tropic which is how uh, Robert Downey Jr. met him. Yes. Uh, and he was on Parks and Rec and Six Feet Under, and he is the star of the HBO series The Leftovers. And he was in American Psycho. And he's also, let's be honest, he's Jennifer Lor- uh not Jennifer Lawrence, Jennifer Aniston's uh, bow. That's probably why most people know who the fuck Justin Thoreau. What are you talking about? Everyone well, knows, he's also, knows uh, him from all under. He's Louis Thoreau, the journalist's cousin, and, and he comes from a whole... F- Famous family of Thoreau's, right? By Henry David Thoreau. Yeah, like Henry David. <laughs> <laughs> the Walden Thoreau's. Uh, no, it's actually the Walden Two. Uh, Return to Walden Thoreau's. Walden Media. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's uh, the the second. Uh, I'm not even going to carry on with this joke. Never mind. I'm pretty sure Walden Two is about mental illness or something like that. Anyway, go on. Yes. Wait, there is a Walden Two. Yeah, did, I think it uses Walden as a metaphor for something. It's irrelevant. Okay, okay, Moving on did, to Justin Thoreau. Did Henry David Thoreau write Walden too? No. Did Justin no, Thoreau write Walden too? I'm not going to say no because I didn't know that he wrote this movie until <laughs> I the writer was. It's true. It's true. Fair enough. Ah, oh, God. So um, we can, I guess. Uh, if, if folks have opening thoughts on this film, we, you can give them. Otherwise, we can just kind of dive in. I liked last time how we kind of went through the film and dissected it as we went organically, um, sustainably. Um, any opening thoughts, or shall we dive right in? Uh, I say we dive right into this one. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Just, yeah. Because the, it's yeah. a hard movie to have, like, synoptic, interesting opening thoughts about. That's true. For a lot of reasons, which we'll get to. <laughs> so we, we start off with the previously on Iron Man uh, set up, where Tony Tony reveals he is Iron Man, and then we are in Russia, uh, and seeing an old man uh, named Anton Vanko die as he watches Tony Stark reveal he is Iron Man, and in his dying yes. throes, he calls out to his son, Ivan, who turns around to reveal himself oh. as Mickey Rourke. Now, I'm really worried the podcast <laughs> might go off the rails right now. <laughs> At Mickey Rourke. The, well, to be fair, the movie went off the rails at that point, too. True. <laughs> Just as I'm it was getting off the rails. Yeah, well, it's kind of weird. Actually, like, the, like, the flashback to uh, the press conference from the first film, it's, like, not the same. Like, there, things are noticeably different about, like, what is said in that exchange, it's like an Evil Dead as opposed movie. to what actually happened in the film, it's really well, it's weird. Like, it's like the first holdup and the second holdup in um, Pulp Fiction. Mm. Yeah, they don't know why they're different; they just are. Yeah, perception's tricky, man. Maybe it's the, it's exactly. the same, and you've changed. Maybe one of them is the edited for television, the actual presentation that people saw, and what we saw in the first film is what happened. Shut up! I don't actually know. know what the differences were so. <laughs> So we, yeah, I didn't notice the differences. But. So we, we have Mickey Rourke. Uh, he's sinister. He's Russian. He looks like <laughs> Mickey Rourke. He looks older than his father. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Mickey Rourke has led a hard life. <laughs> Bester, you, you said on Twitter that this was made during that odd period at the beginning of the decade where Mickey Rourke was kind of a star again. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like 2008 to about here. Yeah. So, like, you know, obviously the... 
the wrestler comes out, and that's sort of his, you know, big, big deal uh, comeback. Uh, yeah. And then I looked at his filmography, and this, this to me, at least, looks like kind of the last major thing he's done. I mean, he's been working consistently since then, but he hasn't been, you know, second build or whatever he is in this movie the way that he uh, has in later ones. But yeah, it's just kind of weird. But as I also pointed out, I thought it was super weird when the first one came out, and everyone was like, Robert Downey Jr.'s back. I'm like, really? And obviously, obviously one of those comebacks stuck a little better than the other one. <laughs> Yeah, because this is like right after the wrestler, right? Yeah, this is like, this is like yeah. what he used his wrestler clout to get. Yeah. Uh, fun fact: my roommate is in the wrestler. Oh, does he play Mickey Rourke? Is it Mickey Rourke? <laughs> <laughs> Do you live with yes. Mickey Rourke? <laughs> Mickey Rourke is my roommate. Uh, no, he's an amateur wrestler himself. Um, he's an extra in the background of one scene, ask, and in the background of a deleted scene as well. Ask Mickey in here. We, we've got some questions for him. Like <laughs> yeah. Mickey, what was what, what was up with your hair? <laughs> yeah, was that your regular hair, or did they do that for the movie? Because I'm pretty sure that was just Mickey Rourke's hair. This is actually the first movie where they have where uh, Mickey Rourke has rejected all help with his hair. <laughs> this is just his natural hair. Yeah, it, it, and those are all his real tattoos. It really does kind of mm-hmm. feel like he he brought most of the character himself, insofar as. If if I met well, if you told me that Mickey Rourke was covered head to toe in Russian prison tattoos, I'd believe it. <laughs> uh, if you if you pay attention when he enters at the end of Act One uh, or re-enters the film, uh, I'm pretty sure he's wearing his costume from the wrestler. Might <laughs> be. I never actually seen the. I mean, you know, he's just shirtless with like orange shorts or something, yeah. uh, and you know, yeah. also the giant electrical whips. Yeah, yeah. he had those electrical Which, whips pretty, of the wrestler. I don't remember. It's been a while since I've seen the wrestler, but I'm pretty sure he had those in the wrestler as well. <laughs> yeah, it's why he, he <laughs> no, got dis- right. he got disqualified yeah. at the end of the big match because yeah, no, he because he cut his guy in half. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think if I met, uh, met Mickey Rourke and it turned out that he had a Russian accent, I don't think I'd think much of it. No, you, I'd go, you don't oh, apparently yeah. Mickey yeah. Rourke has a Russian accent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd buy yeah. it. Stolen. Yeah. So Mickey Rourke is uh, clearly established as our antagonist by the fact that he is a Russian played by Mickey Rourke. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But, we, but he loves his bird. He loves his bird, uh, which is apparently yes. like his boyard. His boyard, yeah, boyard. My boy. A shockingly significant amount of his screen time involves him discussing his bird with other people. Well, there, there's it's well, true. Like he, he doesn't have a subplot in the film. He doesn't have many lines in this movie, and like Not probably, English. yeah, like but it's like English dialogue with other characters. Probably a solid quarter, at least, is him talking about his bird. Well, there, there's, his there's this thing about... I'm not uh, going to say that that's wrong, but uh, <laughs> the bird is his <laughs> primary form of characterization. Uh, that, like, what do you know about him? Uh, his dad was cheated, he grew up in Siberia, uh, and... Prison. Nukes to he loves this bird. He nukes to Pakistan. Is capable uh, of building an arc yes, reactor. He, did. he sold nukes to Pakistan. But the bird is about uh, proving that he's he is the character as opposed to Tony Stark, who cares about relationships. He cares about his relationship with his father. He cares about this pet. He doesn't want a different bird. He wants his bird. But but when they bring him a different bird, he still becomes friends with that bird because that's the bird that's around to be friends with. Yeah. Or maybe it was his bird. And maybe was, Sam Rockwell doesn't know whose bird that is. It might have been his bird. I mean, he he'd, he'd been away from that bird for probably like three weeks, two weeks, maybe. That's probably dead. Probably dead. Yeah, it's artfully ambiguous. Yeah. Well, the, the, how, how long do you think that this movie takes place over? 
Uh, That's a major question I have because how long does this expo go for? Well, so so we, we get we get like, it was like a week. Well, in the in the first the first like section of the film where you've got kind of you see Vanko and you have all that stuff at the beginning. Uh, I think at the end of that, there's a title card that says like six months have passed, like from the time oh, okay. that Tony uh, announces that he's Iron Man, and you see Vanko building an arc reactor, which notably like it, it's. It's a sequel. It's a, I mean, it's a second film, so you're trying to up the stakes at the beginning of the film show. This is different. And like in the last film, we yeah. saw Jeff Bridges being incapable of building an arc reactor. And the first thing we see mm-hmm. in this film is Mickey Rourke doing it like in a freaking garage. It's like, ah. Oh, yeah, he also has the blueprints for it. He does. Yeah. Uh, Eric, would you like to say your favorite line? Wait, wait was, that, was that directed to me, Nick? Yeah. Is that your favorite line from the first my, movie? My favorite line from the first film? You mean yeah. Tony Stark built this in a cave with a box with a box. Yes. Thank you. Uh, oh, Thank you. I didn't know Jeff Bridges was on the podcast this week. <laughs> it was a big gift. He's actually Derek's roommate. I love your work. I loved your work <laughs> in Fearless, Mr. Bridges. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Uh, no, but th- that's a good point. Like, in terms of raising the stakes, like, we discover in the first 30 seconds of the film that uh, Ivan Vanko can build this arc reactor technology. And it takes until, like, halfway through the film for the other characters to, like, make a big deal out of this. Mm-hmm. And, I don't know, there was something ineffective about that. It was sort of like all the other characters were discovering this much later than we were, and we're sort of like, yes, we know. Like, it, it, it seems like the stakes weren't raised quite enough like after that opening 30 second like revelation well it gets to, I to one way the revelation was not that uh that he could build this arc reactor it was that uh his father howard stark had shared the invention with someone else because you see on the blueprints initially mm-hmm. both of their names are there and vanko is before stark uh so but you you continue but, on the fact or you know I think Howard Stark sharing them with Bunko is a generous interpretation. I'm, I'm pretty sure the implication is that Howard Stark mm-hmm. stole them from Vanko. Or or at oh. least that Vanko had enough of a claim to them that he could legitimately feel aggrieved. No, because uh, they say that when he got back to Russia, uh, to the oh, Soviet he Union, couldn't he it. couldn't make it himself. So t- t- they, it was the two of them together, and I assume that Howard Stark... You know, understood enough more that he was able to so make th- it work. This well, was, I, thought uh, it was, it, I thought it was like sort of mirroring the you know the relationship between Banco and Hammer, right? I mean that Hammer had the sort of facilities and the and the materials. Okay. Uh, and Vanko actually engineered the thing. See, I, I actually drew it from from another comparison based on the uh, my favorite part of the film, the amazing Howard Stark World of Tomorrow videos, <laughs> which are de- which are deliberate echoes of, of Walt Disney's presentations. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I kind of interpreted this Wait, as like really? if if the son of Walt Disney, son that he never had, ended up fighting the sub the son of Ub Iwerks. <laughs> <laughs> It's all a metaphor. It is. Um, well, to go back, to, for to listeners go back. who may not know, of I well, everyone knows who everyone knows who, knows who of I works is. That's the point. But no, so I, you, you you get you get Vanko introduced in this scene and in this way. And to your point, dude, like so much of his characterization is the bird and the the weird thing. Like Mickey Rourke as Vanko. There's not a lot of meat on that bone in the script, and part of yeah. that's pacing, part of it's writing, but 
he leans really heavily on affectation to define the character. Yeah. And, like, his motivations, like, you, you sort of have to intuit them. Um, and, you know, like, it's it's not that the film is really coy about it, but the exact, like, reasons for his motivations and the history behind it, like, we don't get that until, like, a 20-second conversation between Nick Fury and Tony, like, well, yeah, an hour and a half into the film or something. An hour and a half into the two-hour film. Yeah. Um, and wow. it's something, there's not enough, there's not enough, like, left in suspense there for us to be really interested in the reasons for his motivation. And so it seems kind of, like, under-motivated, or it seems like the motivation okay. is kind of banal. Well, I do think that there are several uh, larger world things going on here that are left up to us to interpret the ramifications of them. Like, the fact that, supposedly, there's, we're in this period of world peace uh, because of Tony Stark, and that would have a huge effect on the military, which would explain why everyone in the military is so angry, but that's never discussed specifically. Like, if everyone in the military all over the world is just sitting on their haunches, then, okay, yeah, they're going to be real mad. Yeah, I feel, like, I feel like that aspect of sort of the world building isn't really thought through enough. Like, yeah. so, some of that might be, like, Tony kind of over-aggrandizing his accomplishments, but nobody seems to be calling him on that. So it seems like it's kind of accepted that he has, you know, created this sort of era of world peace. Which I think also goes into the stakes of this in that apparently one, like, as this is the second movie in the MCU, I think Yvonne yeah. is third? Incredible Hulk. The, oh, I forgot the Incredible Hulk. But I mean, how, so how? Yvonne is like one of the, what, the first or second third supervillain ever yeah. in uh, in the MCU, but, and battle, he shows up and suddenly world peace is over and no one can trust Tony ever again. Well, is, is, I just feel like there's this sort of like, oh shit, he's there, it, it's over. Is it is it fair to view it that way, though? Because, I mean, like, again, this, this is the third of these films that were made, but now, you know, sev- five years later, with several other films and TV series in between, like, we know the background of what happened well before <laughs> Tony Stark. You know, you had Captain America, you had Hydra, you had all of the, the junk that was going on in Agent Carter, and all this different stuff going on in the past. And maybe you could say the public didn't know that, or maybe you could say that what Tony's doing is of a different type of, of heroing. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily talking about this in terms of the fictive world. I'm talking about this in terms of the storytelling of this. So Justin Thoreau didn't know any of that when, uh, when he was writing this movie. Uh, and it just seems like, A, we're giving weight. Uh, Tony Stark is getting way too much credit for whatever he's accomplished in the last six months. And B, all of that seems to come crashing down a little too quickly for me. He's just like, oh shit, this one guy ruined a race a race car race one time. World peace is over. <laughs> well, I, well, I mean that's the the issue is that the technology exists outside of Tony's control and Tony is not as invulnerable as he wants everyone to believe. So and that, the, that's, the idea that that's the point of the Senate that, hearing. Mm-hmm. With yeah. with uh, my favorite guest star in the film. With, uh, with his typical <laughs> right. uh, kind of so, playboy flavor. Before, we, before we get to that, though, we should we should point out that uh, Kate Mari, uh, Kate, Kate Mara. Mara, Kate Mara serves Tony his uh, his subpoena. Yep. To to uh, a Senate hearing. Uh, yes. The the future yeah. Sue Storm. 
for it. Well, this is right after we've seen uh, Psylocke uh, announcing... Yeah, the future Psylocke, yeah. Uh, yeah. And Larry King's there. Larry King. Yes. <laughs> Larry, Larry Ellison and, uh, and Larry King. Iron Man. Uh, uh, Stan Lee was mistaken for Hugh Hefner, wasn't he? Yep. Yes. And now, now he is either mistaken... Was he mistaken for Hugh Hefner, or was he playing Hugh Hefner in that No, movie? someone called him Hef, and he turned around, and it clearly... That was not who they'd been... Uh, addressing, I, I like to. So, but, he, but he's in the he's in the smoking jacket and he's got the ladies on his arms. And then in this one, My he's in the well, he is was he playing Hector. Larry King in this film? I think he was. Yes, I think he was. He was in the suspenders. Yes. So, so you you've got Larry Ellison followed by Larry King. So it's uh, it's a sequel yeah. to Chinatown. It's the I two mean, Larrys. I mean, he was he he was supposed to be oh, that Larry, Larry, He was supposed to be that security guard in uh, in Hulk. It's not like, it's not like that was. Somebody mistook Stan Lee for a security guard. Clearly, he plays characters. In he's, a, he's an actor. <laughs> yes, he's an actor. Yeah. Um, or something else. Oh, but also that point about somebody else Wait, can build it. Security it's, guard in Hulk? Yeah, he plays one of the security guards. Yeah. Isn't he one of the security no, guards? Yeah, he's, he's a guy at home drinking soda that's, out of his refrigerator. That's the Incredible Hulk, not Ang Lee's Hulk. Oh, okay, sorry. Oh, I, thought we were, oh, I thought you were saying... I was getting my Hulk's back. <laughs> Never confuse your Hulks. Hulk doesn't MCU. Hulk doesn't that's count. Not, that's not Stan Lee drinking that soda. That's some guy. <laughs> oh, uh, I thought it was Stan Lee. <laughs> it could have been Stan Lee. I don't know. That's how he got his powers. So we are at the Senate hearing... Uh, and we have some import, we have some important characters. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. We've we've skipped over the entire Stark Expo, oh, yeah. which is going on for an, an entirely indeterminate <laughs> amount of time. He's there at the opening. He's landing in them in a way that could easily have killed. Yeah. Okay, so f- first of all, uh, uh, the Stark Expo takes about... place in Flushing, New York. I have been to Flushing. That does not look like Flushing. <laughs> you don't know what Flushing looks like I know. In, the, in the MCU. Oh, God. <laughs> well, supposedly The Walking Dead right now is in Arlington, and it's clearly still being shot in Georgia because there are no trees in, in uh, Arlington. <laughs> uh, uh, but that, that is my question about how long this movie takes place over. Not from yes. the end, not from the very first second of the film, but from that dead drop, like yeah. the, yes. the first event of this film. Uh, yeah, it's, it's unclear to me whether that's the announcement for the expo or the opening yeah. ceremonies for the expo. Well, it's, it's the opening, opening, opening ceremony. Oh, okay. Well, then it's, I guess it's the opening it's ceremonies because yeah. other people can read. Um, yeah. Maybe, but, maybe a couple uh, weeks. Yeah, yeah maybe like two weeks. He leaves, the, he leaves the expo in the middle of it to go to Monaco. Yeah. Yeah, and there's all of this talk about, like, coming up at the expo. You know, Hammer's got, got a talk at the expo. And I'm like, actually, is like world... Is this like a World's Fair where it's just going on all year? What's happening here? Don't Tony and Pepper have a conversation near the end of the film where Tony said, where, where like, so, where somewhere in dialogue it is mentioned that she has been CEO for, like, two weeks? Maybe. Maybe. I see the report. It might have been Bill O'Reilly criticizing her on TV. That's also possible, yeah. yeah. Virginia Pepper Potts. Mm. Yep. Virginia yes. Pepper um, Potts. And also that whole uh, opening cer- ceremony, I think, leads a little too heavily on kind of the rock star element yeah. of Tony Stark. He comes out, and he's got, like, the, the Iron Manettes or whatever they're called. The Iron uh, Man. Stark film or of Tony Stark? Because that seems very realistic to Tony Stark's presentation of Tony Stark. Yeah. No, that's true. I just felt he like... dead drops into the middle of a city. <laughs> Why does he not drop out of a plane, by the way? Why does he just fly? He, <laughs> he flies without a plane. <laughs> 
I don't know. Uh, I also really like whenever anyone is hovering in uh, the uh, in like the Iron Man suits. Like you can make that look like really suave and sophisticated, but they always make it super <laughs> yeah. in a way that like you're not making this look super cool right now. You're making this seem really well, awkward. It's probably hard to do the first time you get into it. It's like if you but step even, onto a skateboard, you're not immediately Tony Hawk. <laughs> I mean, if it were just Rhodey that was doing that, but Tony, t- uh, Tony, when he's just kind of hovering in his thing, is still going. Okay. Yeah, but he's drunk half the time. Well, he's got palladium poisoning, so he's probably not on his A game. Yeah, true. Which is which is established at the Stark Expo, right? I yeah, mean, yeah. like in some ways, the, the, the Stark well, toxicity Expo, level, at least. Yeah, <laughs> I think you, you don't know what it is. I think you have to admire the like initial start expo sequence because it sets up a lot of stuff. I mean, it sets up a lot of plot lines, right? I mean, to be honest, yeah, no, it's great. I mean, it's it's really tight. I mean, it sets up the um, blood toxicity from palladium problem. It sets up um, John Slattery as Howard Stark and his uh, you know sixteen millimeter film strips for uh, for popularity. Uh, no, I thought the whole script in general was really tight. Like we're we're criticizing uh, that we're learning about world peace through Tony Stark's discussion at the hearing, but I think that's a good way of saying it. Yeah, I, uh, I yeah. would like to see some footage of something anywhere backing it up, so it's not just him bragging it, it, or it, exaggerating. It works. But, it works well I mean, in terms of kind of the the structure of the script. I think the the <laughs> problem though, and this ultimately affects. I mean, Derek, you talk about that big gap between when Vanko creates the arc reactor and when characters kind of react to it. Um, the, the problem well, isn't so much narrative as it is just pacing. And I feel like a big chunk of that is, uh, so Marvel makes Iron Man, they make Hulk. There's a two year mm-hmm. gap before this comes out. And then after this, you get mm-hmm. Thor and Captain America within a year. I feel like this was the first of the MCU films where they were really being conscious of, continued Mm -hmm. world building outside of the film and there seems to be a pretty clear line of like what was in the script for this film and what was put in the script in order to build that out and it has some weird the captain america shield yeah it has some weird Um, pacing consequences interesting yeah that's interesting i uh my my favorite thing about the uh, about the hearing scene is that um, it's ostensibly what, what, well, yes, it's Gary Shandling. It is Gary Shandling, which is awesome. Uh, but I mean, ostensibly, we are watching C-SPAN's coverage of this, and mm-hmm. C-SPAN is apparently broadcasting in uh, Cinemascope because <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like the entire brain. Really, really stretching the C-SPAN budget. Yeah. It's C-SPAN HD, man. Maybe the future. Well, C-SPAN also but even in HD, would only be 16 by 9. This is wider than that. Uh, uh, yeah, they got some really good footage on the on the floor down there of Tony mugging it at Pepper yeah. and her not reacting at all. Yeah. Uh, so in in this but, in this scene we we again it's it's efficiently communicated information like you're you're learning about the kind of the oh, yeah. world peace stuff and Duge I think is correct in saying we might want to have seen that a little more but it's efficiently communicating information mm-hmm. we meet Senator Stern who uh, we will see again several films yeah, from guess. now in yes. Captain America which makes him make so much more sense um, oh yeah but we also uh, we are reintroduced to Colonel Rhodes. Played by I can't say his name, or else he'll come here <laughs> and tell me stories about playing Sammy Davis Jr. Nobody, nobody say his name. Big Not say. Don Corleone. Don Corleone. 
What if we split it across multiple people? Does it count then? All right, yeah, I'll, I'll start. Duh. On. Chi Chi. Dull. Don Chi Chi. Don Chi Chi. Don Chi Chi. I'll fix it in post. So, so we we re, we re-meet uh, Rhodey, who. Oh, God, we're, we're getting bogged down in all the stuff that's going on in this heavily front-loaded film. Um, <laughs> it's a very front-loaded film. But we, we, we meet Don Cheadle, who is playing Rhodey, and uh, he's a very different actor from Terrence Howard. Mm. I bought, that's, that's an understanding. Yeah, I'm not sure I buy him as, like, a military man as much, but I buy him more as, like, a decent good man. Uh, and the the odd juxtaposition of Tony, whereas Terrence Howard seems more like a real military man, but also seems like he's had his share of, of misadventures and shore leave and such. Hmm. Yeah, you could kind of. I, I feel like you can probably picture uh, Terrence Howard, um, uh, Rhodey, getting into some shit with uh, Tony in a bit more easily than you might be able to picture Actually, Don I felt like he, I felt like Terrence Howard didn't really have any chemistry with Robert Downey Jr. And I feel that's the opposite is true with Don Cheadle. That I want to see it like a, a low budget uh, Rhodey and Tony road movie, uh, but with Don Cheadle. The road to Rhodey. Yeah. Like yeah, if, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Hope Crosby <laughs> movie. It's a Hope Crosby film. Yeah. Nice. Uh, oh, no. Uh, yeah, if, you know, they ever did something like uh, Tom Jane's Punisher Dirty Laundry sketch, I think it'd be great. You know, just a little extra. <laughs> Driving across of the, the country. The two of them having some misadventures. Well, you know, the comparison isn't far off because it really is like their relationship is like more of a Bob Hope, Bing mm -hmm. Crosby road movie yep. than, you know, them having like shared shore leave or yeah. gotten into, you know, trouble. Yeah. Um, it's just a different shade of, like, the, I, I think both relationships are, like, are equally well sort of developed, and, like, I believe both of them, but they are very different. Yeah. When you say both relationships, uh, you mean but the, but, but, Well, Howard. with both Terrence Howard as Rhodey. Oh, okay, and, yes, all right. And I thought you were D referring to DC as uh... DC. <laughs> um, yeah, so we. I was I was surprised to learn how much Terrence Howard had been paid for the first uh, the first he was one. Like the he highest paid, paid actor, like, right? Four... Yeah, he was the he first got... person signed to the film. He he was signed yeah. before Robert Downey Jr. Robert Downey Jr. only got paid a half million dollars for the first movie. He, he's kind of shocking. He's made it up. Yeah, no, well, <laughs> as, as he's been on the top of like the top paid actors for the last couple of years now yeah no he's doing something well that was because of Iron Man yeah. so but yes I mean you know prior to that he, he this Iron Man was probably his way of proving himself like, yeah yeah don't take much money on this one but uh you know if it works out so you you get yeah no he had, had other sort of critical successes before this in his comeback but this is certainly the one that was like oh look I'm also really commercially viable so people you, fucking love so you get um Rhodey reintroduced and then uh, we, we get our other major character. Well, I guess not our not our last. Maybe not even our next to last. But another major character introduced in uh, in Guy Fleekman. Guy, Guy Fleekman himself, uh, Sam Rockwell's <laughs> Justin Hammer. Uh, Bester, you you talk about Sam Rockwell. You're the uh, you're the resident he's expert. Uh, uh, he's great. He's uh, very, he's got like a very slimy kind of 
a darker version of uh, Tony going on. He uh, apparently Sam Rockwell was somebody that they had th- uh, thought of uh, for Tony in the first movie. Uh, and I could definitely see that. I feel like it'd be a much scummier uh, Iron Man <laughs> if, if we went that route. Uh, Sam Rockwell. Uh, he shows up and is apparently the Department of Defense's primary weapon contractor, which I'm pretty sure the uh, Department of Defense has a lot of contractors. <laughs> yeah. I don't think they have one. And, and mo- most most one. of them probably make weapons that work. Yes. Yeah, there's, uh, there's no evidence to me that he has any idea what he is doing at any point in this entire film. Yeah. No, yeah. He, he, he shows up, he clearly he styles himself as, as, a, as a Tony alike but clearly doesn't have the chops. Tony hacks yeah. into his presentation to show various failed attempts uh, by various it, countries and Hammer to uh, make a Iron Man suit. With it Hammer seems like... Something in a man's back being broken. <laughs> yeah. Um, he, he reminds me of, like, it's his father's company, and his father had to go out of town for a week, so he's acting CEO, and he's uh, <laughs> making a lot of decisions that he shouldn't be making. Yeah. It's true. And to be yeah, fair, yeah. This, the script does try and, like, justify his incompetence a little bit, or not justify the inco- his incompetence, but justify why he is the primary contractor, um, because uh, it mentions that, like, because Stark stopped making weapons, yeah. uh, the Hammer Industries, like, grew in to fill that gap. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, that's that's one of the implications of Tony's Iron Man activity that the film it kind of hints at. But, yeah. I mean, the way that the film talks about it, Tony's actions as Iron Man have enormous geopolitical uh, repercussions. And we don't yeah. see them as much as we hear about them. Mm-hmm. But we get Sam Rockwell. Yeah, we don't see them a lot yeah. in the first film. And yeah. presumably, yeah. maybe he's still flying through the Middle East and saving every village that he yeah. happens to have woken up in. Yeah. Uh, I guess it just goes back to my issue with the scale of the repercussions. I just feel like world peace is too much for him to have accomplished. Yeah. I wish I wish it had just been, you know, he's made the world a better place and, you know, we're not in you know, even if the US isn't involved in major wars at the moment, yeah. that would be a that would be a pretty nice uh progress for us. Yeah. As opposed to there's nothing fucking happening anywhere, anywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he solved yeah. Somalia. But I think the thing that I I like about Rockwell the most in this, and I think it's something that I like about him basically in every film that I've ever seen him in, is, yeah, he's incredible. But what it is, is every time I see him in something, at no point do I get the impression that as an actor, he is trying to be likable in any way. Oh, no. Yeah, the first thing that I remember seeing him in, uh, well, when I first became aware of his name was in Matchstick Men, and I hated him. For years yeah. after that, because he's so scummy in that he's, movie. He's awful. Uh, <laughs> uh, but then I remembered that he played uh, gang leader in Alley in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, <laughs> and you hated him uh, in that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I realized that, no, I, in fact, uh, thought this guy was great. <laughs> yes. You love him. And, yeah, and no, he's not a... He's, he's, he's the best part of the film. Oh, he's definitely the best part of the film. And he's definitely, you know, Sam Rockwell is... is when you need a uh, when you need a you know scummy guy, he's he's the best. He's the best in the biz. I thought that, uh, well, I I would say that his chemistry with Mickey Rourke is probably the best part of the film. But I would say <laughs> Mickey Rourke is just as good as him. Um, yeah, at least just as entertaining to watch. Yeah. So to- Tony um, has his roadie, and uh, Mickey Rourke has his Sam Rockwell. 
Uh, can we talk about uh, about Pepper for a minute? Sure. We haven't mentioned Let's her at all. Uh, Virginia Pepper which Potts. Is, which is fair because the movie hasn't really mentioned her much. She's just there uh, with no characterization again. Uh, what are you talking I, I about? She's allergic to strawberries. <laughs> <laughs> That hasn't happened yet. She's allergic to strawberries, and Bill O'Reilly hates her. So it's something that's rare yes. and something that's common. It makes well, her relatable. She must be doing something, right? <laughs> well, she's she's at the the hearing, um, just mm-hmm. sort of, and briefly interacts with Tony there, just mostly to sort of like <laughs> give him signals about, it's like, no, you're going too far, or um, yeah. whatever. But the first major conversation um, or scene that she has in the film. Uh, is in uh, Tony's workshop, right? Yeah, um, yeah the art collection. And, and that's, uh, like, before we get to talking about um, her, like, becoming uh, CEO of Stark Industries, I'm trying to remember, I was struck this watching the film this time um, at the the sheer extent of, like, holographic bric-a-brac that, yes. that is in the space that I don't feel like we got in the first Iron Man no, film. I mean, this seems to be the first time that they're really like, they're really emphasizing all of that, all of the like awesome technology, um, mm-hmm. just holographic like interface technology that Tony has in his yeah. workshop. And I don't know what you guys think about that, but I couldn't remember an example of that in the first film. It seems to have been introduced here. In, you mean yeah. in like, holograms, period? Because they're definitely, no, they definitely, no, they're definitely holograms in the first film, but like the, the like expansive, no. just like everywhere holograms. Yeah. Particularly, yeah, I mean, and I'm also sure like, and like his workstation with like a six screen display where every single screen is that sort of high tech see through <laughs> glass. Yeah. For some reason, people want in movies, but I have a lot of notes here about like see through phones and see through. Yeah, why would anyone uh, want to see through a phone? <laughs> yeah, I don't understand what the appeal of a see-through phone is. Why do you need a phone that, A, you can see through, but more importantly, other people can see through yeah. your phone. Yeah. You don't but want way- people seeing into your phone. That's right. But the way in which the holographic technology is itself a kind of attraction in the film, it's not just like... It's, oh, okay. it's not just exposition for us, or and, and it's not just transmitting narrative information. I mean, we get actual, like jokes in the you know like that little like basketball sort of target game mm-hmm. yeah. uh that's integrated as part of this um yeah but it, you know, know, it was just struck, yeah but it also sometimes often does seem like weirdly superfluous like yeah. the very last scene where uh fury and uh tony are talking and they're in like an abandoned warehouse but S.H.I.E.L.D. has, for some reason, set up, like, six whiteboards with, like, uh, around the table they're sitting at, but they're all see-through displays just to make sure we know it's high-tech. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, but that's the uh, and that's such a major part of sort of that S.H.I.E.L.D. MCU aesthetic nowadays. Like, if you think if you think forward to the Avengers, they're, like, and uh, both of the Avengers movies, when they're all doing their science shit, the science brothers are doing it. It's always on these kinds of weird holographic displays. Yeah. Have we considered that uh, maybe this is just normal technology for billionaires and we don't have any personal experience with it yet? <laughs> yeah, it's possible. Um, it is important, though. Like You need to have that technology in order to uh, have the, the three-dimensional map that he's able to manipulate and parse down until he finds the element structure. But it's a question of, of it being like a um, sort of bit of 
world building versus it be or like kind of establishing what kind of world it is versus it being um, an actual integral component of the visual style that's being built. Oh, I think it's entirely because they just have a bigger budget now. But but it um, it, well, it becomes from this point on like with the exception yeah. of really I mean Captain America and Thor the first Captain America and is set in the past and Thor is on a different yeah. world but basically narratively everything forward from here that's an important yeah. part of the style yeah that's true well, yeah. Uh, one of the notes that I saw uh, was talking was actually talking about this and the reason that it kind of jumps forward so much in uh, technology is that uh, like a lot of the a lot of the sort of uh, like cell phone technology that they were using in the first movie was slightly cutting edge at the time, but then like technology had caught up to the point where it doesn't seem quite segways aren't nearly as impressive as they were when the first movie came out. Uh, so there was the, so there kind of was Jeff Bridges on Forgot about that. <laughs> so there is there was apparently some sort of uh, conscious decision by the you know the set dressing set dressers special effect people's part of like mm-hmm. let's make this look even more uh, futuristic so the tech doesn't look. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, behind the curve. Yeah. yeah, I read on Wikipedia that they were specifically trying to do something that would be sleek and, you know, modern, uh, but without looking like it would be dated yeah. 10 years from the movie's release. And they, and like, to set up the this came built when Tony later on in the first, like, the map to building this element, this new element. Yeah. Um, that he has a, a means of accomplishing that. Yeah. yeah. And also from like a just from a like a simple cin- cinematographic uh, perspective, there is some appeal to these kind of see-through uh, frames or see-through displays and all that because you can frame people from different directions and you can still see what they're looking at. Yeah. Like if, yeah. if you just had like yeah. Tony's bank of six frames and you need to see what he's working on the computer, you could really only do it from behind him. But here you can get a close-up of him and you can also see what he's working on on the computer at the same point. time. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. No, I th- I th- yeah, that all that all links up. Story checks out. Yeah. Yep. All right. So, so we we, we uh you, you pepper yeah so yeah <laughs> pepper. <laughs> so, yeah, you've got um, yeah. I, I think it's appropriate I like that though that she's our... the only one in the Senate hearing who is not amused by his general yeah. uh, boyish antics. Antics. I don't. I don't think Senator Stern was that amused. <laughs> well, that's true. But, but he's uh, you know, evil. But he even won over Senator Stern by commandeering those uh, those screens and proving that uh, this was not something that anyone else needed to worry about. There's... I mean, Senator Stern in the end is saying, oh, "Okay, no, you're right." No, We're no, done no the last thing Senator no, Stern yeah. says as he leaves the room is, "Fuck you, Mr. Stark." <laughs> yeah, but he calls it to a close and ceases pursuing him at the time. The the um, I, I think... because he's been publicly embarrassed. No, I, I do think it is. I'm not uh, saying that he likes. Him. I do. I do think that it is. It is telling. Whatever. It is telling that our conversation Brilliant. about Pepper. Continues getting derailed by questions of one set dressing and two. What did he say? Well, Pepper is pretty much set dressing at this point. Is my is my point? Uh, but throughout most of the film, we're told often that she's highly competent. We see her working occasionally, but we also see her standing in front of what is clearly a bomb because it is designed so that we will immediately recognize it as a bomb. And she just stands there with her head tilted to the side and does not move at all until Tony comes and rescues her. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think uh, one of the one of the like. 
one of the things I do like about uh, Pepper and her sort of narrative role in this film is mm-hmm. in, in taking on the the running of Stark Industries. Mm-hmm. Um, she kind of, I mean, she's a useful foil in, in an even greater sense than she was in the first film for just like how much of a child Tony is. Oh yeah. Um, and th- in some ways, because of that, she, like her character makes Tony, at least for me, like much less likable in this film. Mm-hmm. Like he seems like a complete, like childish jerk in this movie. Well, um, that's his journey for the movie. I mean, that's, I think that's very deliberate. No, I mean it's it's for every movie. He just keeps well, doing yeah, it, probably, yeah. but less less uh, so in in other films than in this film, though, right? He, I mean, he's at his lowest yeah. and his most self destructive and immature in this film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the his of the several things that he does in this movie, the primary one is figure out how to uh, stop his insides from rotting and killing him, and replacing them with you know his father's legacy of pure usable energy. Uh, yeah. Hmm. But it also yeah. sets up, I mean, th- this is, this also, sorry, go ahead. There's only one way to make an element, right? You just add more <laughs> electrons and more <laughs> Like, he didn't, it's not like he created a new structure for an element, like loops around on yeah, itself like a figure protons, eight or something like that. I mean, it might be hard to add more protons and neutrons or, and electrons. So I believe that he didn't have the technology at the time, but mm. he's not the only one in the entire world who figured out that that is what we need to do. Yeah, and the way it's not like we speculate on them beforehand. It's just like let's just fucking uh, send heavy element into other heavy element and hope that we yeah. get element 118. Yeah. Then try yeah. 119 and 120. Now, um, like, I, I do I do feel the need. We to, don't build pavilions of atoms. I, I do feel the need to point out here. About, you still haven't talked about it until we still got sidetracked from. Pepper. Well, even more than that, we're about 25 minutes into this movie and we've been talking for an hour and a half. Or an hour and 15 minutes. Whoa. I did not realize it had been that long. Uh, maybe um, not about the movie that long. I guess, yeah. Like there was a lot of... Yeah. That's true. But we, we, there was a yeah. lot of uh, stuffed animal showing. So, so we, we, get, we get Pepper. She's made CEO. She remains, uh, you know, a, a reflection of Tony's excesses. Uh, and then we get our final actual major character introduced in the film for a while. Natalie Rushman. Yeah, you know, we get we get uh, Natalie Rushman, who is uh, is the Black Widow, although we're not supposed to know that yet. Despite the fact that she's being played by maybe the biggest star in the film at this point, Robert Downey Jr. is probably a bigger star in terms of box office now, and maybe he was then. But she's certainly incredibly recognizable, and not the kind to be playing oh, yeah. like a low end secretary. Yeah. And it's unclear to me if she becomes Tony's new assistant or if she is Pepper's assistant. It seems she, she just made the new Pepper. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. shaky. As she replaces. She Pepper. She re- yeah, she replaces Pepper, but then she goes to work for the Star Corporation while Tony is under house arrest by Shield. Yeah, because uh, Nick Fury tells him she will continue at Stark uh, undercover. Yeah, and, and this, I don't know what 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 did you guys feel about. Obviously, Black Widow was being established here to appear in mm-hmm. later films and to kind of become that, that integral building block to what Marvel was doing. Uh, did it feel natural to you? Did it feel forced to you? And what did you feel about kind of her characterization here as opposed to what we see later? I remembered that she was in the movie. I had forgotten the whole thing about her being <laughs> undercover. Uh, and what I wanted to know is, like, so he 
Tony sees her and being Tony, he's immediately attracted to her and like starts doing weird uh, like looking up all of her files and discovers that she like did modeling. Uh, so who at Shield set that up for the deep cover? Who was like, here, Natasha, put on this lingerie and and, and we're gonna take some photos of you on this uh, bearskin rug. It's for work. I assume that was cover from. I mean, she's been an assassin all over the world, like her entire life, right? I assume that was just I'd, real at some point. I just assumed it was Phil Coulson. <laughs> He's like, uh, well, you know, Natasha, we really need to to, uh, to make this deep, deep cover. So we've got to give you a wide internet. Uh, I don't. I don't, I don't want internet the Google results search. I don't want the bearskin rug. I don't even need the bearskin rug. But Google needs the bearskin rug. <laughs> uh, uh, I. I mean, I like the scene of her being introduced. I liked that. Like, when, when she comes into the room, Tony is actually beating Happy in the ring, and they're both kind of mugging at each other and uh, being Robert Downey Jr. and John Favreau uh, in their entertaining ways. Uh, but as soon as she comes in, he steps out of the ring because he doesn't feel that he needs to show off for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, what he wants to do is then interview her uh, for the the new secretary job that has just opened up. Uh, and he is as surprised as anyone else in the room when she takes Happy down with some kind of spinning leg a, grip a, thing. Ba- basically a luchador <laughs> move. Yeah, uh, there you go. Very, she's very impressive. Yep. Okay, so with- yeah, I mean, I, th- I thought it was a pretty good integration. I mean, I don't remember it seeming out of place either when I first saw the film or um, when I watched it earlier today. I mean, it, it seemed pretty, yeah. uh, pretty, pretty smoothly done. Yeah. I, I felt that it was much better now than when I saw it the first time. I didn't... I liked this movie well enough the first time I saw it years ago, uh, and I liked it a lot more this time. Um, But what I had remembered about her role previously was that she had the best fight sequence in the film, uh, and I was surprised that they had done that at the time, but Avengers hadn't come out yet. Mm -hmm. Um, But watching it this time, I think that her role is significantly funnier in light of her future relationship with Tony. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, you know the entire time that she's an incredible badass. So it, but a lot of this movie seems to be revealing things to the audience, and then part of the entertainment is knowing that the characters don't know those things yet. It's almost like it's dramatic irony or something. Um, <laughs> yes, okay, fair enough. It's like rain on your wedding day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so all of these characters introduced, now we can actually uh, we can start the film with... Uh, yeah. Uh, a, an action set piece set in Monaco. In Monaco! Uh, my favorite part like, uh, of this set piece where Tony is attacked on the track by Vanko wielding electric whips. My favorite part was actually at the beginning and something I hadn't noticed the first time I saw it, which is when Tony decides he is going to race the car himself instead of allowing the Stark driver to race it. And he kind of... Yeah, I have a question about that. Yeah, he, he pushes <laughs> the driver aside and is getting into the car. It's not like... Tony steps into the car, and the driver's like, okay, boss. The driver is pissed off. He throws his <laughs> oh, helmet yeah. across yes. the track. He is like, this is a guy who's spent his entire life trying to get the point where he can race at the Monaco Grand Prix, and Tony snatches it away from him. I want to know that guy's story so bad. I also want yeah. to know what Venko's plan was. Yes. yes, this is the bigger problem. That is the bigger problem. So uh, ex- explain the plan. Insofar All as you right, understand well, it. He, 
Well, he knows Tony so well that he knows that he will go to the Grand Prix and take someone's place, and he will be able to attack him publicly. Yeah, so he he like gets smuggled into Monaco under uh, an alias who I think is Whiplash's name in uh, in the comics, and this this character is kind of a weird amalgamation of Whiplash and the Crimson Dynamo. Uh, and he's like posing as, or possibly just straight working as one of the pit crew at the at Monaco, and he just like comes out into uh, into the street that the race is happening on. A track. I clearly know very. I know how to describe <laughs> race car races very well. <laughs> well, it is a street, right? I mean, it's a street that's been turned into the track. Yeah. Like the Grand Prix uh, goes through the city, right? Yes, and he turns on his. Electro whips and then burn off his jump, the top part of his jumpsuit, and he starts whipping at uh, cars, and then eventually slices Tony's car in half, and a suitcase is eventually given to Tony, and they fight. And Tony wins. Here, I have a question about this too. How much does Tony's costume weigh? How much is the Iron Man suit? Like, how heavy is it? It's enormously heavy. I yeah, would it's assume it's like at least six hundred pounds. Yeah. <laughs> So how much does your suitcase weigh? <laughs> That's a good point. Go. That's a good point. Yeah. Six hundred pounds sounds like the very lightweight version of that. I would imagine that like a standard one's probably close to a ton. Yeah. <laughs> That's a fair point. Uh, okay. but that's just that's John and Pepper Favreau. just catches yeah, it out the window. John Favreau that's just John Favreau getting his character in all yeah. sorts of like fantasy situations yeah. in this film. You know, yeah. I bet I can, I like, can, he can lift six hundred pounds. He wrestles Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> Scarlett Johansson changes in the backseat of his car. Yeah. It's like, well uh, one, one of the ongoing things that happens in this film is everyone has a double, right? Obviously Tony is also Iron Man. Uh uh, Anton uh, is, well, I mean, I got a whole list, but um, um, Justin Hammer is the real Justin Hammer who is working with Anton, and he's also the, the fake Justin Hammer who is uh, working for the military. Uh, uh, Pepper, there's the casual Pepper and the business Pepper. Uh, but probably my favorite is the the real Happy and then Happy's vision of himself as someone who's really good at all of these things. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I do enjoy that John Favreau is willing to make a fool out of himself. Uh, and I mean, I guess you, you're directing these incredibly successful movies. Uh, he, he, you, you've earned the right to put yourself in here in a silly fashion. Sure, I'll go with you. Yeah. Um, oh, Vanko and his dead double uh, in the in the prison cell. Oh, that's true. Um, Howard Stark Which... and Tony's memories of him well, as two different people ultimately, um, ultimately though it, it, it's it's not just that they're they're doubles kind of within that context but all of these characters are ultimately reflective of and doubles of tony as well i mean that that's yeah that their their definition continues to be in their relation to the, to him yeah yeah um, yeah, yeah that's absolutely true um and the one of the more interesting ones to me or more subtle ones i would say is the vanity fair reporter who was there for justin hammer but then as soon as tony shows up uh, she's then there for Tony, and she's back in yeah. who she was in the first Christine film. Christine Eberhardt. Uh, yeah. But my favorite, my uh, well, let's see. Let me let me run through the others uh, before I get to the best one. Well, there's um, Stan oh. Lee, who's Stan Lee, and yes. Larry uh, King. <laughs> Larry King. There's Senator Stern and Hydra member Stern. Yeah. Um, uh, 
the actually the only one who I think doesn't have a double because obviously Natalie, Natasha, Agent Coulson. There's the friendly one, and then there's the stern one. Uh, Nick Fury, I think, is the only one who only plays one character, and he references it and saying, "I've got my eye on you." Like I only have one. There's only one way to see me, and it's he is the as eye. the eye. Finally, like there are like six characters in a row who try to speak truth to power to Tony and tell him like, "Stop being a child. Stop being an idiot. Be responsible." All the time. Uh, and Nick Fury is the first one to get through to him. But my favorite one is Bill O'Reilly, who is playing the character Bill O'Reilly. <laughs> <laughs> and Christine Yamanpour, who's playing the character of Bill O'Reilly. <laughs> but I mean, you know, Bill O'Reilly famously not actually a terrible jackass in person. He goes on Colbert and he's very friendly and a normal human being who someone can talk to. Oh, and he's playing the character. Yeah, you gotta, get, gotta uh, give the around. people what they want. Yep. <laughs> the, the, the expo, which is also uh, the, uh, the molecule, the strawberries, which are both a uh, thoughtful gift and something that will kill Pepper. Oh my uh, but throwing this, the, that's, uh, the symbolism of that is important because the, the moment when he throws away his attempt to be cute uh, and acknowledges the fact that he did not know her allergies, that's, you know, he humbles himself and realizes, okay, I'm actually being a jackass here. That's the moment when he has the insight. Yes, true. So, uh, to, to try to, because we, we're going to be talking about this for four hours if we don't move through the film a little more quickly. <laughs> I'm just saying it's really tight script. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, there's not a lot of wasted lines in here. Like, they're all doing something. We, I, I'm pretty impressed with the way this whole thing is structured. So t Tony beats Vanko at the Grand Prix. Vanko is imprisoned and promptly busted out of prison by hammer mm -hmm. using C4 disguised as mashed potatoes. <laughs> uh, and a guy who looks very slightly like Mickey Rourke wearing uh, the same... Wearing yeah. the, uh, the, the prison uniform with the same number, which does not which seem not to be a very... Off. Yeah, it does not yeah. seem to be a very good way to uh, to fake his death, but, given that unless there's been extensive dental work done on him a la the whole nine yards, I don't think that's really going to hold up. Now, we have, <laughs> yeah, we have established, though, that Justin Hammer is very bad at things. But not the skin on his body, which is not tattooed. Yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, you know, why Why are people looking too closely into this? A bomb went off in a prison. Uh, <laughs> clearly, the guy with the same, like, height and description, they're not going to think, you know, maybe someone snuck a double prisoner in here. Uh, well, he is, you know, probably the most notorious terrorist in the world right now. Yeah. There might be some scrutiny about his death, I feel. Yeah. Oh, I mean, so, I'm sure there is, but, you know, so, are they going to get anywhere in the next three days? It's also not something that's developed. It's like, yeah. you don't return Tony to it later no in the film, but yeah. it's like, oh, Vanko's dead. We found, yeah. you know, his yeah. remains in the cell. Like, it for doesn't reasons. really go anywhere. That, no. C4 was in there for some reason. Let's not think mm -hmm. about it. He's dead. Yeah. So Vanko's... He's got, I mean, Tony's worried about himself dying at that moment. Yeah. So. so Vanko's yeah. busted out of jail by Hammer. Hammer wines and dines him. They have like a fun conversation and birds him. And birds him. They have a fun <laughs> conversation. It won't my bud. Yeah, my bud. And my bud. Hammer is essentially asking Vanko to um, fix his attempt to make an Iron Man suit. And after mm -hmm. Vanko, this crazy guy who wields electric whips and kills innocent people at the Monaco Grand Prix says, yes, I'll do that. He is left unsupervised with an incredible amount of technology and weaponry to just kind of have at it. 
Uh, again, well, he, Sam Rockwell, not very this good is at a man, This is a man who eats his dessert first. That's true. Uh, <laughs> and he's, he's clearly got a, an overdeveloped sense of entitlement. Yeah. Tony has, a ver- has an equally developed sense of entitlement, but he never messes up. Uh, except emotionally, uh, but like when he's when he's drunk at the party, he uh, he's shooting watermelons and bottles of champagne. <laughs> when he's injured, uh, Rhodey stops him before he goes you know any further. But three times in a row, that's pretty good and amazing that no one was hurt by flying glass. But my point is, Tony is a man who has earned his cockiness, and this is a guy who has earned nothing, but somehow has everything. My favorite my favorite part of the scene though is like. Rockwell like talks for a solid like five minutes, giving like his like sort of villain Wait, speech. Do, do you mean Sam Rockwell, or did I miss that the musician Rockwell is in this? Uh, take that as you will. Uh, <laughs> okay. Hammer, hammer, which could be I do hammer and see someone's hammer. watching. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um. Last Like gives his sort of like Bond villain. Uh, here's what I want to do. Speech. We are for, not like, a solid so five minutes. You and I. <laughs> And then, and then goes, wait, do you speak English? He didn't even bother to check if uh, yeah. Banco could understand him. What we're saying is we love Sam well. Rockwell, and this film should have been called oh, Iron yeah. Rockwell. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, Justin Hammer. Uh, Iron Rockwell. Justin Hammer. Okay, so we have that alliance formed. Uh, at this point, Tony, uh, because of the palladium poisoning, has resolved that he's going to die. And on his birthday, uh, he decides to get drunk in his Iron Man costume at a party and shoot wa- shoot watermelons out of the air like a fucking high-tech Gallagher. <laughs> because Natalie told him to or gave him permission. Yeah. I would do whatever I want with whoever I want to do it with. And what does he do? He fights his best friend... And has donuts with Nick Fury. <laughs> that's pretty. That's, that's pretty awesome. Pretty good day. So uh, yeah. there's ultimately a, a fight scene. Rhodey has to take uh, Stark's old armor and fight him with it. Leave, so he's got it for the military. And Tony. Uh, and I think Daft Punk is playing at his house. Yeah. I'm not sure. No, DJAM. 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 Yep. What? Yeah, but he the, plays Daft Punk. Daft Punk is what plays over the climax of that fight scene. And then Tony goes to sit in a giant donut. While eating donuts and drinking coffee, and Nick Fury shows mm-hmm. up to talk to him. Now, I do, I want to say, Nick Wait, Fury, Natalie. Nick Fury, like in anything Samuel L. Jackson does these days, he's he's such a a big personality as an actor that it's sometimes tough to tell when he is playing a character and when he's just being Sam Jackson. Like if you watch Django Unchained, he's very clearly like putting effort into playing a character and defining a characterization here. This film, he was just playing Samuel L. Jackson. And more so than maybe other times he's played Nick Fury. And every line that he has is, I don't have time to deal with your bullshit. I'm a busy man. Do you think you are the only thing on my plate? Yeah. Do you think that that you are the only concern that I have? Um, But to be fair, Ultimate Nick Fury is based on Samuel L. Jackson, so... He if is. there's any role that he can do that in, other than like playing himself in the biopic of Samuel L. Jackson, um, <laughs> don't be so biopic, dude. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, my, uh, my favorite part of that whole sort of you know uh, talking talking Tony down is Nick Fury's line uh, telling him that uh, you can solve the riddle of your heart. Yeah, <laughs> surprisingly. <laughs> Which is surprisingly poetical. It's so for, beautiful. Uh, for, it's so uh, beautiful. Poetical. 
That should that should have been the uh, the subtitle for the film, Iron Man Two: The Riddle of Your Heart. <laughs> oh God, it is now. <laughs> Didn't you guys see Edge of Tomorrow? You can change the name of a movie after you released it. <laughs> I mean, no, I'm sorry. Didn't you see Live, Live Die, Die Repeat? repeat? <laughs> Live Die Repeat. I mean, two two to two to one. There is a Nick Fury uh, Tony fanfic called The Riddle of Your Heart. Search it. <laughs> Search it now. Find it. All right, I'll, I'll go on uh, archive of our own and uh, yeah. find it. I don't want to know about this. <laughs> so the the, um, the big revelation from the donut scene. Oh, I'm I'm sorry. Go uh, go on. Oh, no, go ahead. Yep. The big revelation from the donut scene is uh, that Howard Stark was a founding member of S.H.I.E.L.D., and he left a bunch of stuff for Tony to, to see at a later date. And it, this mm-hmm. is, like, we mentioned it being a tight script. This is a part of the film that I actually did not feel was that tight from a scripting perspective, because <laughs> the next 20 minutes of the film are really about Tony using the knowledge that his father gave him and coming to terms with the fact that his father loved him to save his life and allowing his father's love to save his life. Um, Which feels like it should be an enormous emotional moment in the film and perhaps Tony's, like, core arc of the film. But we don't really get Mm -hmm. a setup for it. Like, the the only... We don't don't have that. Prior to this? Yeah. Or... Yeah, prior to this. Okay. Um, I mean, I guess I feel like it's demonstrated in his behavior, that this is something where they they show it to you, that he he is an asshole. He's like, he he's never grown up. Uh, he, he didn't have any guidance. Mm-hmm. He is just working on his uh, boyish, or playboyish charm uh, through the entirety of the, the film until this point. Mm-hmm. And it's always worked. Uh, but he's rotting on the inside because he d- he's not mature. He doesn't have any guidance. And the uh, the message that I took is because he didn't feel that his father loved him. And now now we see why he has been acting this way through the first one and a half films. Uh, because despite the fact that he is the leader of the Stark uh, company, his, his father's never really been addressed before this. Uh, and now we get that. And this, this part of the movie is a little meandering, but it's supposed to be because he doesn't know what to do next. Uh, he has He's to... He's got a riddle of his heart to stuff. Yeah, <laughs> but he doesn't even know what the riddle is. He doesn't speak the language of his own heart. Yeah, yes. Uh, and unfortunately, I could my Google my Google search of the riddle of your heart in quotes and fanfic did not turn up any results. Oh. So shame on you, everybody on the internet. Close it down. You have a homework assignment. It is to write a to a Tony Fury or Tory uh, fanfic <laughs> uh, uh, called the riddle of your heart. Uh, or funny. Well, hey, one listener, that's your assignment. <laughs> huh. Maybe uh, Tony and Nick's talk? <laughs> I mean, Stefan, to your, to your point, I mean, it not being set up. I mean, there's that line of where Tony says the happiest day of his life was when he carted me off to boarding school or something oh, like yeah. that. Um, and so, I mean, for me, like, I didn't I didn't believe the sudden like transformation in their relationship. Like after he sees the like ostensibly heartfelt video, it's like my greatest creation was you. Um, it just it feels like I think there's there's an arc there, but it's not really developed and it's not terribly satisfying. It's just sort of like my dad hates me. Oh wait, never mind. Um, and he, you know, you know, it just, it just doesn't, the way that it is 
the problem isn't so much in the structure as it is in the in the the plotting, right? I mean, in, in the in the accomplishment of of that structure. So, yeah, like, but yeah, no, it's it's kind of a it's kind of forced into the film a little bit. Yeah. Um, I, I, and I think this is it, it gets to what what is maybe my biggest criticism of the film, and part of this is the the Marvel Studios side of this and part of it's just kind of what's in there but at times it feels like the film is almost trying to do too much mm-hmm. uh, you know he's got an enormous number of relationships and issues that he has to resolve um, to the point where like really Vanko appears at the beginning of the film he has that one scene in Monaco he's sprinkled through almost as comic relief at times but he mm-hmm. does mm-hmm. very little in the film. Um, he kind of disappears for this like segment of the film. He, he does, like to, to the point where when he calls Tony back at the end and kind of draws him to uh, flushing again, Tony's almost forgotten about him. And well, that's because he's he's dead. Well, yeah, but but even even then, it's like the whole. He's supposed to be Whoa. kind of this looming threat that's hanging there, and ostensibly he is the externalization of the issues that Stark is supposed to be dealing yeah. with internally. I mean, he's not the primary villain. But, but Tony he, is. But he's not a, a significant enough part of the plot to serve that function of reflection. Mm-hmm. He ne- he needed he needed one more thing to do. He needed one more big beat. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I, I like the I like the role that he has. Um, it's, I, it's, I do think that it's tough some to of his conversation with, I mean, all of his dialogue is about talking to Tony about the truth about Tony uh, and saying, you're not Iron Man, you're not invincible. Uh, like, you may think of yourself as God right now, but I just made God bleed, and now I'm going to sit back and watch the world devour you. Uh, and that is not untrue. I mean, it's, if, if I have a problem with him, and it's, it's that too much of his dialogue is too on the nose about Tony's personal struggles. But, you know, he does... How does he know that Tony's going to be in Monaco? Like, it, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Uh, but there is no explanation for that. Uh, but... He was reading the, uh, People Magazine. Okay. I'm, I'm uh, was it in Russian? Russian People Magazine? Yeah. Like, Russian people. Yeah, the Russian... Yeah, it should probably be us, us weekly, right? US weekly. <laughs> I'm wondering if what's if what's missing in like. <laughs> I, I mean, I I I think your point is correct, Stefan, in that there are like there are too many relationships, and it's it's like there's no one central core. Um, and it seems like in the first film, that core was the relationship between Pepper and Tony, right? Mm-hmm. Proof that Tony Stark has a heart. Yeah. Um, and here, that relationship is so underserved. I mean, we get, like, basically none of that, like, pretty cool, like, great screwball comedy kind of stuff that we had in the first film. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's a little bit, bit of it, um, but it just well, she, doesn't really... Go ahead, dude. Uh, Pepper just becomes a reward in this film. Like, she's... And I, you can you can say that that's a bad thing in terms of, like, script writing. Like, this is a woman who just serves as a reward for a man. But to himself, like, Tony has never made that leap with her. Because I think to himself, he has always known that she is much better than him. And that even if they got into a relationship, he could never be the person that she needs. Uh, but once he, um, you know, uh, proves to himself that he can be mature, that he can uh, accept his relationship with his father and... Uh, 
but it, it feels also like, stop poisoning himself. Yeah, What's that? It, it feels like though. I mean, again, if the the core of the film and and arguably the series should be the Tony Pepper relationship, um, and it's it's various permutations, <laughs> and it's okay if in a particular installment you want to emphasize something a little more than that. But here it's mm-hmm. it's almost lost, kind of in the the different things that are going on, and the di- the different like yeah. yeah but you got to consider Tony's relationship with his father that we just set up, and his relationship with yeah. him, you know, all of this. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like in general, Shandling. most of the other characters. I mean, Tony's the only character who's really developed in this movie. Uh, everyone else, as you said, is a reflection of Tony in some fashion. Like when when she's furious that he's donated all of the art that she bought to the Boy Scouts of America, she gets to say one thing about it after that, and then immediately she's moved on to another topic, saying like, "We have all this other stuff to deal with." Like it, it doesn't seem like someone who is really hurt by the what he has just done to her. Like that's a terrible betrayal. Uh, and admittedly, it's part of a larger prank in the scene that she does not know that he's playing on her, where he's ending it with, oh, also I'm making you CEO. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it, it seems completely unrealistic that she would be, you know, ostensibly upset, but then move on immediately. Um, I, I don't really feel like many of the other characters in this movie are real people. Uh, Rhodey in particular, he's, he's very two-dimensional, I feel. Um, uh, but you know, it's they're doing a lot. You're right. They're they're doing a whole lot, including uh, creating new elements. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, do we, do we know is, what is, number element it is? Is that established? No, no. They don't they even don't give it a name. With, they're going <laughs> to come up with a fake name for it. They're just like Jarvis is like you. Jarvis is just like you've invented a new element, oh, sir. Actually, uh, is it is it iron? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they could be. We don't know. That be. I mean, that would make sense why they call him Iron Man. Yeah, right? it's true. He oh, no, he was called that in the first movie. Yeah. So I guess he hadn't invented it yet. Well, I mean, it, 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 that iron, iron in this universe might be like you know mithril in our could universe. Just like that's this, true. This or adamantium this, in our universe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. This sort of you know uh, fantasy metal, and so he's named himself Mithril Man. Uh, yeah. uh, but then he actually discovers the element, so he gets to name it Iron Man. Yes, exactly. Iron Man? Perfect. Makes perfect sense. Iron Man. Saul Iron Man. Iron Man. Eisenman. Eisenmensch. Yeah. Yeah, Eisenmensch. Yeah, yeah, Eisenmensch. Uh, uh, so, yes, he invents an element. Yeah, which, which, in the oh, dumbest uh, way possible. Do Anton and Anthony come from the same root? Probably. Is, Probably. Is Ivan's father also uh, an Anthony, basically? Ah. Uh, uh, Symbolism. Yeah. Um, oh, you want symbolism? <laughs> when he's making the element with that laser, he has to literally destroy the foundation of his home in order to make progress. Mm-hmm. Uh, he tears out the foundation of his own home to, uh, you know, to create this. And then he, Wait, which I, I, and then he shoots, a, and then he shoots a particle accelerator laser at a triangle, and that's apparently how elements are made. <laughs> I assumed uh, as I was watching this that what he was actually doing, since it was based on his father's research, and we do find out kind of what his father was doing in later films and all that stuff, I assumed it had something to do with uh, essentially like synthesizing Tesseract energy. Because we even do see an image of the Tesseract in his father's notes. You're talking about the Tesseract from uh, Madeline Langle's A Wrinkle in Time, That's correct. Right? That's correct. That Tesseract. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. he, he, was, he was synthesizing literature. He could have just like, bought okay. a fucking right. typewriter. 
I thought I thought he was talking about the Salvador Dali painting where Jesus is crucified on a hypercube. Yeah, also, also that Tony is very much a Jesus figure insofar as he is crucified on the technology that he created. Um, <laughs> he he is a god who bleeds. Yeah, that's that's what Jesus is. Yeah. So uh, ultimately, Tony saves his own life. Um, at this point, Vanko feels the need to re-enter the film, uh, having con- that's, a, that's accurate. <laughs> having converted all of Justin Hammer's bad Iron Man suits into drones. It's drone better. Drone, drone. drone better. Yeah. Uh, learn, drone to, better. learn to let go. Um, <laughs> yes, learn to let go. Which sets up our uh, our action climax at the end of the film, where uh, the drones and also Rhodey now as the war machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, are unveiled during Sam Rockwell's keynote speech back at the uh, the Stark Expo, which features Just Sam Rockwell. Going on. Yeah, which features <laughs> Sam Rockwell dancing onto the stage to the tune of the average white man's "Pick Up the Pieces," which is my favorite part of the film. <laughs> and then he gives like a very dramatic speech uh, that that ends with the line, uh, "The problem for jur- something like the problem for journalism will be that they have That's run right. out of ink." Yeah. And nobody applauds because it's a terrible line. And then there's this, like, very, very lukewarm applause the entire time he's dancing around as the military uh, songs play and he unveils. Why, why does each branch of military need a, uh, a separate kind of drone? And why only does the Air Force kind fly? I would think that, you know, it would be helpful for all of them to fly. <laughs> Yeah, well, e- each branch needs its own because, uh, you know, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines are very territorial. It's, it's You're yes. an Army man or, or a Navy man. Uh, why, why don't the Coast Guard, why doesn't the exactly. Coast Guard get any drones? Shouldn't the, yeah, Navy, the shouldn't the Navy units be like aquatic units? Drone boats. Drone boats, yeah. Drone boats. <laughs> That'd be amazing if they just have like a little like boat skirt around them. <laughs> <laughs> so they can float. This could have been the perfect time to introduce uh, Namor. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That's it. Yeah. No, Universal owns those rights. For some reason, oh, it's amazing to me that they're still clinging onto those rights. Like they've been, they've held them for decades and have done nothing with them. Ah, maybe we'll do it. Maybe they're waiting to also acquire the rights to Aquaman. Oh. So this entire time, have they been doing like Roger Corman esque? Like we're just going to make this movie to hold on to the rights? Have there been yeah. like a it's dozen like that, Namor uh... movies that they've never released? It's like that Kevin Smith uh, documentary about Prince. The Prince hired Kevin yeah, Smith yeah, to make, yeah. uh, and then Prince kept, and it will never be seen. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. What? Yeah. Uh, Kevin apparently, Smith Kevin Smith made, made something or said something about Prince that he didn't like him or didn't know anything about him or something. So Prince hired Kevin Smith to make a documentary about Prince, and then from, this is from what I understand. Obviously, I did not speak to Prince about this, nor Kevin Smith, <laughs> but. Uh, uh, then Prince took the copy of the film and owns it and keeps it in his vault and no one watches it. That sounds like a fair... That, that gels with what I know about Prince. Yeah, I mean, his life is performance art, and this time it was all geared around screwing with Kevin Smith. Which, <laughs> again, gels with what I know of uh, Prince. Yeah. Games. All right, so... So, drones. Yep, and now we have an action climax where... Uh, after Sam Rockwell had left uh, Vanko alone with all this technology, it turns out he misused it for his own evil deeds. And uh, yes, yes. Yeah. and we get the most take that, Rody. That's good for hiring a military contractor who is competing with Tony. Yeah, 
and and we get the most gripping computer action scenes. It's hackers. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's typing. Uh, <laughs> typing at each other. Seriously. Yeah. Then you get uh, the Black Widow fight scene to try to take out uh, lots of guards. Well, hold on a second. Did Which the is net much more compelling come out after hackers? Because the net had way more uh, computer ah, action. Yeah, the net. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure hackers came out after. Uh, okay, after, maybe you're right. Yeah. With Penn Gillette, uh explaining what's happening to uh, the uh, executive, who has the great line, "Cancer brain, brain cancer." What? <laughs> Uh, hacker, right, hackers, so and the net. So uh, uh, I, I don't wait. wait. Iron Man no, dudes, dudes. Then, we have to, we have to clarify. Sorry. This is very important. <laughs> okay. uh, hackers and the net both came out in 1995. Oh god! Um, <laughs> but the net, the that, net right? came out in July, and hackers came out in September. Yes, Ooh. hackers. Mm-hmm. I'm right. Hackers mm-hmm. came out later. My mistake. Barely. <laughs> Sneakers came out before that, though, and is still a more relevant technological film than either of those. Anyway, this is true. go on. Uh, so, b- back in our movie, uh, Rhodey no, and Iron Man that. face off and then fly out of this movie into a kung fu movie in a small <laughs> Japanese garden. Yep. <laughs> they face off with a uh, an army of kung fu drones. Yep. Yes. And Which is all solved with lasers that you can only use once. Yes. Well, you know, it's it's very depleting. Uh, he doesn't have that uh, palladium, 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 right? Okay. Well, and, and then you also no. you you get the Scarlet, the famous Scarlett Johansson fight scene, uh, which I had oh, for, yeah, I had forgotten cool. that all of that happens while Happy is still fighting one guy. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> and he's so well, proud of know, himself. He's so Happy doesn't know what MMA is. So. No. <laughs> which is ironic. Boxing. Which is ironic. Because I first learned of MMA from John Favreau's character on Friends, where he uh, he's dating Monica, oh, yeah. and he's designing. He's conquered a, the uh, was it the romantic world, the business world. Now he's going to conquer the physical world. Yeah. So <laughs> she discovers that he is that he is desi- he has hired a ring designer, and he's like a millionaire. <laughs> uh, so she assumes that he's going to propose, but no, he's built a octagon uh, for MMA. So. so what you're saying is that uh, no fish hooking. That John Favreau became so associated with MMA in the minds of the public at large that this was just a winking nod to his former persona. I'm going. To, I'm going to say yes. I am going to say that this is a roundabout allusion to uh, you know he was in a good number of episodes of Friends. He was a recurring character. So I'm, yeah, I'm going to say. I didn't even remember that was John Favreau. To be honest with you, I remember the John character. Favreau. But I don't think I've seen it since it aired initially. So, I think I've seen. Uh, can I just can I just point out the fact that we're we're talking about this Instead and not the, the actual climax? Yeah. <laughs> I think this it's point, a pretty poor climax. It's really it's an awful climax. It's particularly particularly once Vanko shows up and like it's like oh shit now the fight's really going to start and they solve that fight in like a good thirty seconds. Minutes, there's max. like with there's something like that they established earlier in the film. Yeah, they like exchange like three or four blows with Vanko and then figure out how to blow him up, and we're done. Maybe, but symbolically also, it's important because it's the only uh, type of attack that Tony couldn't do on his own. He needs two different beams at a good distance apart, so he he has to that's work true. with someone else. So it's important in terms of developing relationships. Derek? Well, yeah, no, thematically it works. It's just a it's just a very a big letdown of what's supposed to be the oh shit now it's two Iron Man's fighting an Iron 
Electro Whip guy. No, yeah, like, I mean, to, to that point, like, I'm, I'm struggling to think of an instance in any of the MCU films where Iron Man's, like, action sequences don't involve him fighting some kind of, like, version of Iron Man. Oh, yeah. Well, that's true across oh, the MCU. Man, it's the climax Marvel. of the third film. Like, he's fighting a fireman. He's fighting a fireman. <laughs> and doesn't it, does it seem like Iron Man fight a fireman? Isn't, isn't it Pepper's? I don't remember Iron Man 3 very well. But Ant-Man's allies are other Iron Man. Man. It's true. Yeah. Uh, uh, Mo- most Mar- four, most Marvel eight, villains are like in the MCU are just bad versions of the heroes. Yeah. It's Hulk Abomination. It's Iron yeah. Man versus all of his Iron Man characters. Mm-hmm. It's uh, yeah, Ant Man versus Yellow Jacket. It's uh, yeah. uh, Thor yeah, no, versus Loki. It's Stark Stark versus Ultron. Hulk and Abomination. Um, I guess Captain America and, and Winter uh, Captain S- and Winter Soldier. Republic. Yeah. Even even then, no. The, in the first one, there's still the result of uh, both of the result of Reinhardt's I mean, experiment. Red Skull is bad Iron Man or is bad yeah. Captain America. The only one I can think of uh, oh, that what? isn't off the top of my head is uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, yeah. Yes. With uh, um, another not so compelling villain. So. <laughs> yeah. Again. Well, yeah. I mean, I, we've, we've talked about this before. I mean, I think with the exception of uh, of Loki, there really aren't many if any particularly compelling mcu villains no. they're all kind of they're all kind of dull and at least in my opinion uh i don't know what about the mandarin <laughs> <laughs> well we'll talk about that when we get there because like yeah. you i don't remember that uh, that movie very yeah. well um but certainly uh for my money at least mickey rourke is one of the blander of the despite being ridiculous and uh mickey rourke He's very forgettable in a lot of ways. Well, maybe, maybe uh, this is this is what, what gets the to jeweler? the yeah the jeweler. This is what gets to the problem um, of you know again. So Mickey Rourke, his character kind of moves in and out of the film. He's gone for long periods of time. He kind of seems perfunctory at he points. Avoid. Maybe the uh, very short fight at the climax reflects the fact that to do just point. I mean, of, yes, the conflict of the film is primarily internal, and maybe dramatically you would want a little more external in the conflict, but. Maybe to Tony Stark, um, this is actually just a very minor nuisance and a minor villain and not something he's really going to remember in the context of all of the other things that happened in the film. It's like, okay, yeah, this guy, this guy showed up. I fought him for two minutes the first time, and he showed up again, and we fought him for two minutes the second time. Like, just a, an incredible... I, he's a one-issue villain. But, but this man destroyed world peace. He shows up, and suddenly world peace is shattered forever. I, I would like to uh, reference our... Sorry, Nick, I didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, I, was, I was done ranting. Okay, so <laughs> if I recall, I'm just remembering this now because I've arrived at this theory again, uh, having forgotten that I had this theory previously. Uh, that they're all ghosts? Yeah, no, that Tony Stark died uh, in the <laughs> desert before he became Iron Man, and that this is his karmic journey to redemption because... This stage of his of his afterlife is about uh, learning to overcome uh, his self. I don't remember what he learned in the first movie. That was another movie. It doesn't matter. He's going to learn the thing again. Uh, he, he now has to accept his father, uh, and he, he has to make the journey through uh, his own life, not as Iron Man, but as Tony Stark, because uh, that entire climactic like creation of the element he has to do outside of the suit, because the suit wearing it will kill him faster for reasons. Uh, 
And so he has to do all the building himself with jackhammers and no workmen. Uh, Airtight. And, and, yeah, by the end, you know, he... Uh, oh, so Mickey Rourke's character, his job uh, as a ghost of uh, Tony's solipsistic projection of his own afterlife's... Uh, as a psychopomp, uh, he's one of my favorite words. There you go. Psychopomp. Uh, he, he is the... Uh, the ghost that tells him that he needs to build relationships. So once he has built a relationship with Rhodey, and they have uh, overcome uh, Rhodey's distrust of Tony and Tony's distrust of Rhodey, then working together, uh, uh, they can kill the, the ghost. Bunko is destroyed, and he no longer uh, needs to fight that uh, hungry ghost anymore. Okay. Uh, question: uh, Is this does this theory? Only apply to the Iron Man solo movies, or is the entire MCU uh, I, Iron uh, Tony Stark's afterlife? Uh, right now, I'm gonna say all of them. Yes, it's all Tony's projection of his imagination. Uh, okay, because it Black Widow, we have established, is uh, uh, temptation for him, uh, but he. He does not. He chooses not to show off for Natalie, and instead steps out of the ring and goes and sits with Pepper, uh, his his soulmate. And then, look, and then looks at glamour uh, modeling. Yeah, shots looks at her on bearskin rugs. Well, Tony's yeah. entire relationship with Pepper is founded on them being in love with each other and Tony being an asshole and having sex with other women, basically in front of her. Uh, so you know, this is part of him getting over that. He's got to you know continue to work it out of his system. But he doesn't. He well, never goes after her at all. Like they flirt. She is flirty with him and says, "Is this dirty enough for you?" And he doesn't take the bait. Again, airtight. He's all growing. Right. All right. Follow up question: Is the Incredible Hulk part of this, or is that the only non-post uh, Tony's death MCU movie? Hmm. I don't know because that was made before there was the I, yeah before there was the idea that they were going to put them all under this umbrella, right? Uh, I feel like this is the first movie where they're like, okay, these are going to make money. We need to make them all connect. Actually, no, now I think about Hulk comes after uh, Iron Man, doesn't it? And Tony shows up. Tony shows up at the Incredible Hulk, yeah. Yes, that's right. That's how I remember the order of the movies is by thinking through the final scenes. The post-credit scenes. Which we are getting to now with the final scene in this In another hour! Yes. In which Phil Coulson drives into the desert in New Mexico and finds... We did not talk about Coulson. Can, finds a hammer. Can we talk about Rhodey sitting on the roof, arriving there before them, and then watching that whole romantic scene and not saying anything until they're kissing? <laughs> that happens. He's a weirdo. <laughs> he's, a, he's a military. It is weird that they didn't look around, though. That no. he just Also, how did Rhodey know that Tony was going to fly across the city to save Pepper? And he just happened to land at that building at a time. Why didn't Rhodey save Pepper if he got there first? Maybe he's got a, tra- <laughs> Maybe he's got a tracer on him. Maybe. Maybe they were racing to that building, and on the way, Tony remembered, oh, I should save Pepper. That's why he got there first. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. That could be. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> so, so. Somewhat, somewhat related to that, I will say that like the CGI that they used to insert the, uh, the actors' faces into like open Iron yeah. Man suit things, both for uh, Rhodey there and earlier when... Ivan shows up and he's got like his mask open. It's fucking terrible. That's it looks bad, awful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I I guess I didn't notice that, but uh, I didn't really notice it in Furious Seven either. So <laughs> when Iron Man showed up, you didn't notice it. 
Uh, no, I guess I didn't notice that. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a subtle cameo. So the, mm-hmm. the film basically ends with uh, Tony's best friend watching him make out with a woman that he'd been awful to <laughs> for years, and then with Tony yes. getting fired from the Avengers uh, before the Avengers yes. exist. Well, it's like he's getting kicked out of the being, No Homers Not club. being hired. <laughs> no Homers. No Iron Mans. We can have one. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then Phil Coulson goes and finds a, a hammer in the desert. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Oh God, that's uh, a lot of time talking yeah, about about, uh, about that film. Uh, what uh, what what are you guys kind of going around the horn? Final impressions, final thoughts on uh, Iron Man two. Your, your key takeaways, as it were. That that I'm good, just... huh? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Don't ever know, talk this, this movie, I, I've, I've seen it probably three, maybe four times now. It just Long gets times. it gets more and more boring. I don't know. It's like it's it. it's like it is a it is a technically like good script. Like when, I mean, we've been calling it tight. Um, it, it's sort of like it hits beats in sort of the right order, and like there aren't any sort of loose threads um but it it just seems like it's doing work it's it seems like it's 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 serving the goal of like okay we got to get this plot and this plot and this plot mm-hmm. and we have to get it resolved all right now we have to work back on this it's very almost you know sort of like mechanical without having a very obvious kind of overarching um overarching purpose to it you know um, I guess Tony sort of grows in the film, um, but not really, you know. And, I mean, for me, the fundamental, like, what's missing here is that Pepper-Tony uh, relationship that just gets really underserved in the film. Um, you know, there were there were many great things about the first Iron Man, and I think that relationship was, like, in the... In the top two of the great things uh, about that first film, but so. the other of the, the two top. being Jeff Bridges shouting Bobby Tony Stark. <laughs> Specifically, him on a segue. <laughs> you found the pee with a cigar, with a cigar, no less. Yes, uh, an unlit cigar, as I recall. Yes. Uh, oh, I did. I like the. Uh, I like the scene when they're uh, they arrive in Monaco and they're taking photos. And uh, Tony tells Pepper not to flare her nostrils because she has. She's done it just before that, and he barely had to look at her. And the indication is that he it, he does know her very well. He's just not good at remembering or really deeply caring about her. He's just really good at reacting to her and being clever, and that's why he doesn't know about the, the strawberries. But we also forgot an, another crucial final scene, the... The Star Wars award ceremony at the end oh, with uh, Princess true. Leia, played by Gary Shandling. I mean, played by Senator Hydra <laughs> Member Stern, or whatever his yeah. character's actual last name is. Not the first name. Funny how annoying a little prick can be. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Take your just desserts, Tony. You get pricked by the award that you wanted. <laughs> yeah. I feel like at this point he actually does have a fairly uh, I feel like he can start making that argument again that no one can make this technology 
because the only other person who could make this technology was the genius son of the other man who invented it, yes. uh, who had the uh, blueprint. No oh, one yeah. else could invent it. And we this vaporized anymore. him. Yeah, and uh, I mean, he makes he makes the point to uh, to Venko right after Mo- the Monaco scene. I was like, mm-hmm. you know, you could have sold this to like any number of countries. You could have put this on the black market, uh, mm-hmm. and he doesn't. So. Presumably, nobody else has this technology, and thus he can go back to, you know, policing the world and giving us world peace. And he's also established that that if anyone else does get the technology, uh, now we have two Iron Men that can kill them. And it's not a problem. They just need to cross the streams and blow them up. Exactly. Cross the streams. I, I think it'd be pretty hard for him to sell that technology without adding any kind of safety features to it. Because what you have is, like, the most symbolically, like, Soviet version of an American technology that I've ever seen. Where Iron Man has this full-body suit, and Vanko has electric whips and no shirt. Yeah, and the way... A harness the way basically he... made out of PVC pipe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean the way that the way that Iron Man stops him is to literally just sort of reach down and without yeah. a whole lot of force, just kind of gently yank out his arc reactor. Well, he pulls him in close by wrapping the whips around himself the way that you see someone with a whip in a movie get disarmed, right? Which, which tells he me that they're the not very good whips. No. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> Whips are not a very good uh, weapon. No. I think this is really the, the lesson here. Take that, I mean, Indiana Jones. He does. He does cut several cars in half. But he can't cut one Iron Man in half. Is a man with an iron suit, or with something probably not iron? Maybe. But, maybe iron oh is my. a magical metal in this movie. Yeah, uh, iron is Marvel's version of adamantium. Well, I mean, it will stop fairies, right? Cold iron. Yeah. Uh, that's exactly right. That's how yeah. you tell if someone's from fairy that's, if your baby has been replaced with a changeling. That's, that's why no uh, no no, chang- no changelings getting at me. I, I eat a, I eat a pill of iron every night. But is it cold? It's got to be cold oh, iron. Fro- pull yeah. it right out of the freezer. Burns well, going down. I think down. cold iron means that it wasn't mined, right? That it's iron that was like found on the ground. I don't know. You, you, I, smelt you it. make do, oh, you I make thought, do with what I you can. I live in San Francisco. <laughs> I can't. I just find I an iron on the street. Iron. I thought it literally meant like cold iron. Yeah, like you put your martini glasses uh, in the the freezer. Yeah, it's like a it's like a whis- it's like one of those whiskey uh, stones instead of ice, but it's made of iron. Yeah, just. I'm familiar with whiskey stones, but uh, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure cold iron is a is a an industry term, if you will, in fantasy literature or possibly the real world for iron that has been uh, an industry uh, discovered term rather than fantasy smelted. literature. <laughs> All right, well, moving on. Now, now, dude, dude, you you started talking like five minutes ago. Is this your final thought, or are you building into your final <laughs> oh, thought? No, I said we needed to go back to pre-final thoughts to address the awards ceremony with Gary Shandling. Okay, uh, we have. Now, are you beginning your final thought? Uh, let me let me continue to uh, read through my notes, and uh, someone else can follow up to Derek's final thoughts. Bester. Uh, I'm just, I was, I'm looking up cold iron right now, uh, which according, according to Wikipedia is a poetic and archaic term for iron, which does not tell me, tell me about that. <laughs> I wouldn't. The defining characteristic of cold iron is that it is iron. Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, 
I mean, I, th I think I think Derek kind of covered a lot of kind of my final thoughts. So in lieu of final thoughts, I'm going to uh, sort of expand the rules for the uh, you can solve the riddle of your heart writing contest. Uh, so earlier I had suggested Tony, Tony and uh, Nick Fury, but I feel like there's a lot of other uh, potential solutions to the riddle of Tony's heart. So alongside Tony and Fury or Tori, uh, I will also accept uh, stories about Tony and Happy or Toppy. Uh, and Tony and Coulson, or Tulson. What about uh, so, uh, uh, Natalie and Pepper? No. That's, not the, and that's Pepper. not the riddle no. of Tony's heart. That's the riddle uh, of Tony's heart. Could be. Could be. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he'd probably want to watch. But, uh... Paddling. No, no. Or Nepper. <laughs> Nepper. Nepper. Yeah, I guess it's <laughs> Natasha, probably. Well, I mean, I guess since she plays two roles, it yeah. could be either. You could do yeah. uh, Natalie and Natasha. <laughs> Yeah. Huh. All right, then. So, Wait, we need to anyway, end this episode uh, quickly. Every, I got other everyone business. Out, everyone out there listening, get, get writing. I want to I see your best uh, Tony Slash stories. And the, remember, the title has to be uh, You Can Solve the Riddle of Your Heart. Uh, and those those are my three suggested pairings. But, you know, I'm, I'm willing to entertain uh, others. If, you know. uh, oh, Hammer. Hammer's an obvious one. <laughs> Obviously, we need to have Tony and Hammer. Uh, yeah. Hammer. Hammer. You, I, did you I, mention uh, Vanko? You must have mentioned Vanko. I did not mention Vanko. I was thinking mainly of him and good guys. But, yeah, we could definitely do that. Uh, if you want to even go further back, you could do him and uh, Obadiah. So that would be Tobadiah. <laughs> I, will, uh, I will post this uh, the, the rules of this on the blog uh, along with the uh, link for yeah, submissions. If you, if you write an original uh, musical accompaniment called uh, The Riddle of the Heart. <laughs> Yes, I would recommend uh, in the style of a 1980s uh, love ballad. Yeah, uh, uh, or if you get lazy, uh, you can just dub over uh, "Total Eclipse of the Heart." Yeah, that's, that's not a, you should you should really write a uh, a Steinman's uh, song called uh, "Riddle of the Heart." I will also accept this. So yeah, this is not only uh, fanfic. This could also be fan vids. I'm really uh, anything you want. You know, fan vines. I, I, I'm open to to anything you might uh, suggest. So, I look forward to it. It's Tweet me at Bestor, at Bestor, B-E-S-T-O-R-B, the B is for bargain. The extra B, you mean. No. The first B is just for Bestor. The way that Homer what? says, the extra B what? is for B-Y-O-B-B, or B-Y-O-B-B. -B. B what? what about that what extra B? Mean? Oh, that's a typo. <laughs> Yes, there are there are multiple extra B jokes that could be made via the Simpsons about my Twitter handle, but no, which has multiple that. B's in it. <laughs> yes. A what B about B the B hounds B with B's, B's in their mouths and when they bark, they shoot B's at you? Not that kind of B. It could be B's. B's. Jump that up more. All right. So yes, uh, get get writing, get vining, get fan bidding, filking. I will accept filk. Whatever you want to do. Um, so I, I actually, well, I don't know. I enjoyed the movie, uh, significantly more than I expected to from what I had remembered about it. And in general, I would say I'm pretty impressed with the script. Um, sometimes it's hard for me to gauge how entertaining a film is when I'm watching it to analyze at the same time, because partially because the pacing is off because I'm pausing to take notes and such. Uh, but I... Uh, I don't know. I, I don't consider it to be as I don't consider this film to be as good as a lot of the later MCU movies, um, uh, Winter Soldier and Avengers yeah. and 
uh, you know, the, the really good ones. But I don't think it's as bad as The Incredible Hulk. Uh, Fantastic Four. Any of them? Except uh, the Corman ones? <laughs> well, well, not... <laughs> I haven't I seen the new one. We're just limiting to MCU, right? Or were yeah. you talking just uh, all Marvel movies? Uh, I don't remember either of the Thor movies very well. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think the Thor movies are, are very good. I think they're better than this. I would say this is probably the, the time, second worst MCU movie Thor was after. considered the best. Uh, uh, I remember at the one. time, but everyone was very impressed with it. Kenneth Branagh directed... Uh, well, that, everyone said that it was an actually very accessible regular film. Let, let, let's, let's argue about Thor after the next yeah. episode, which is Fair Thor. Enough. Um, yes. So, well, well then, um, Bester, you said Look that... forward, boys and girls, to Thor! You said this was the second worst uh, of the MCU films, Incredible Hulk being the first? Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's fair. And even Incredible Hulk is not bad, it's just kind of... Oh, yeah, no, I don't I don't think there's ever... I don't think any of the MCU movies have been really stinkers yet, but... but uh, I do think I, that I would the say formula fine. is getting real heavy. That, that's, yeah. that's the point, and that, that's kind of my, my final thought on this. It's like... I feel like yeah, Iron Man was kind of is still kind of the template that a lot of this was built on. Yeah, but um, this is the f- I think this is where it becomes a formula, and yeah. you're, you're kind of hitting you're hitting the beats and you're hitting the story, and it's it's fine, it's entertaining, it's it's not bad by any means. But when it's done, you're not really left with anything. And when you go forward, the the films that Marvel makes that actually do leave you feeling like, man, I just watched a really good film, are the ones that deviate from it. And the, the two that immediately come to mind are, are Winter Soldier and Guardians of the Galaxy, both of which are very different films. Yeah, and probably for my money, the two best ones. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think particularly... Oh, I actually felt like Guardians of the Galaxy was a very cookie-cutter kind of... The, the beats that it hits in that movie, I, I never felt... Like there was much uh, at stake, but anyway, we can. I mean, I feel like, I feel like you can certainly make the make the argument that the plot's a little thin in that movie, but I think there's a lot of there's a lot of charm uh, in sort of how how it goes about doing that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think for me particularly, like when at, in sort of the final showdown, uh, Venko shows up and he's essentially the Iron Monger with whips. Yeah, it's just like oh, it's the same it's the same climax as last time, except there's another well, Iron Man here. He doesn't get a name. Uh, any more than the element gets a name, so can we just call him the Whipmonger? <laughs> the whip. My consistent term for him in my notes is Electro Whip. <laughs> is he related to Electra? He might be. He is, he's also a ghost. Yeah. Mm, Ele- that's true. Electro was his father, and his mother's last name was Whip, so he. It yeah, was I did. I did. Electro- I, did, I, did I, I did write it Electro Hyphen Whip, so yeah. yeah, no, that holds up. Yeah, yeah. so he was. Anton Vanko was like his adopted father, but his his, his bio dad was uh, John Electro hey. and uh, Mary Whip. Yeah, he's B- Boris Electro Whip. <laughs> Mary Why Boris. Why always Boris? Mary Whip sounds like a uh, a cocktail from the thirties. <laughs> Mary Whip. Mary Whip. I love a Mary Whip. I put it on my eagles. <laughs> <laughs> That was a reference to. Boy, that's a deep cut. It is. It is so so deep. I think you've cut bone. (laughs) 